You are listening to Humanities Unbound, a public humanities podcast produced by Taft Research Center, a center dedicated to excellence in humanities and social science research located at the University of Cincinnati. Taft Research Center is generously funded by the Charles Phelps Taft Memorial Fund. My name is Dr. Amy Lind, and I'm the director of the Taft Research Center. In this episode, I'm talking with Dr. Lazaro Lima, professor of Latino studies at Hunter College, City University of New York. Dr. Lima's new book, Ian Brown, Sonia Sotomayor and the Latino Question, which we talk about in our discussion, is published by University of California Press. Thank you so much for agreeing to do this interview, Dr. Lima. I wanted to start by asking you generally about your background and how you came to decide to write a book about Sonia Sotomayor. Yeah, well, it's a big topic, but first, uh, thanks for the invitation and uh, and for hosting me here at the University of Cincinnati. Uh, this is my first time in Cincinnati, and I've just found the, the city phenomenal. So uh, a little bit about my academic trajectory. Uh, I'm an immigrant. English is not my first language. And one of the possibilities for social mobility that always adhered to my immigrant family's version of coming to the States, of giving up versions of home for the sake of a future, were always premised on education. And education is a type of freedom. And education as social mobility, which is really part of the driving force of various iterations of the American dream. So from school experiences that were oftentimes jarring when we left uh, Cuba, we went through Spain and with a little sojourn in, in the Azores, which were a processing center for Cuban refugees at a certain point. We arrived in what I've since called the northernmost city in Cuba, which is Miami. <laughs> and Miami was a space that was very similar to the versions of home that I had remembered prior to that displacement across the Atlantic into the west coast of Africa in the Azores and then in the Iberian Peninsula. So when my parents divorced and all of a sudden we had to find another version of home, uh, we ended up in in Connecticut. And it was really curious to me that um, I was shocked that folks don't speak Spanish in Connecticut. Um, (laughs) And and that uh, meant being taken in by uh, teachers and counselors who were uh, interested in me not because it was part of their uh, job description, but because they saw it as as part of their mission and what they were doing. And that was a different time in American public education where even the public school system uh, had a very clear sense of the mission-driven imperative of what it means to to live the American dream. Uh, We're in a politically different moment right now where uh, the challenges at hand are many, but one of the constants was always this notion of education equals social mobility. So Sonia Sotomayor's story is really one fundamentally of social mobility and immigration. So those points of contact uh, with the fact that she is the nation's best known and most influential Uh, public figure being uh, on the Supreme Court now since she's been in uh, since 2010 made her uh, an uh, an opportunity to think through 
uh, how to present a version of the Latino and Latina experience in the United States through this representative figure. So I went through uh, ways of figuring out how to tell the story of Latinos in the United States that certainly goes back so many years, but we have uh, such a paucity of examples and certainly were not reflected in the social mirror, in the educational mirror, and in the nation's institutions. So she really became a figure through whom the character and promise of American political life could be rearticulated again for scores of nationals, nationals in the making, and other disenfranchised majorities. And she has herself uh, taken it upon uh, herself uh, to really provide a sort of blueprint for the si se puede that we have come to associate with Latino equity projects, the yes you can and yes we can. And I wanted to see how that story uh, jibed or not with the structural systems in place that would allow for a fortified American dream in the 21st century. So the book, Being Brown, Sonia Sotomayor and the Latino Question, seeks to tell two parallel stories, one of this phenomenal and engaging human being and her amazing story, and also the parallel run that that story has with versions of enfranchisement and the possibility for social mobility uh, of the nation's largest uh, minority majority, right now at 57.5 million, which means that Latinos in the U.S. right now uh, represent the largest minority, more than African Americans or any other. So uh, part of the story is trying to explain why this has happened, um, what we stand to lose as a nation when uh, we don't understand the politics of uh, civic possibility and becoming and engagement. So the book tries to tell that story. Thanks. In the book, you talk about the Latino question in relation to the historical Jewish question and the Negro problem, quote unquote. Can you tell me a little bit more about how and why you focus on the Latino question and what that means to you? Yeah, the Latino question um, can basically be summarized as an opportunity to understand what is the country to do with Latinos as its largest majority minority, and what are Latinos to do with their disenfranchisement from American civic life. Um, as I mentioned, Latinos are the least represented in administrative structures uh, from the court to institutions. Think of, uh, in our own fields, uh, how many administrators, how many college presidents, how many provosts, how many deans uh, are Latinos. So I really want to understand why we've inherited a version of Latino-ness, that is, versions of Latin Americans in the United States, as re recent interlopers onto the national fold rather than constitutive of the nation along with other uh, groups. So to the question, what are we to do with uh, our nation's most disenfranchised majority minority, uh, what are the creative responses that Latinos have engaged in since the consolidation of the United States after the U.S.-Mexico War, for example? And these historical signal and flashpoints, uh, we've lost them, and we don't tell them uh, in our national pedagogies. We don't tell them 
uh, in our stories of Americanness because the Latino question is a type of familiar stranger that we recognize and we get a sense of, but it's a familiar stranger who disappears like a ghost and reappears at moments of profound cultural transformation, such as the one that we've inherited after 2016, where we are now contemplating what to do with children still, uh, as of this interview, uh, in cages. So having that conversation respectfully and thoughtfully, but also with the intellectual rigor and passion that could allow us to better understand this inheritance, how it came to be, is, I think, central to democratic practice and certainly part and parcel of what humanities projects should be doing to engage with uh, the broader civitas. So one thing that really impresses me about your work is not only the writing you've done, but also the films you've made and the powerful stories that you tell through your writing and films. Yet, you have a critique of storytelling. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit more about what that means to you, what we need to do since it's so trendy right now to talk about storytelling in the humanities and beyond. You know, what do we need to do beyond that? And how can humanists intervene in these so-called wicked problems and these crisis situations we're faced with? It's really interesting. Uh, Crises are inherently anti-narrative. They either precede, narrative precedes crises. Oh, we're going to have a hurricane. Uh, But it evades common locution when you're in the middle of the morass, when you're in the middle of the thick of a storm, and it's only after that you begin to piece it together through storytelling and through uh, the rearrangement, uh, as we used to say in literary studies, uh, of discourse as plotted onto a grid, right? So discourse is the arrangement of facts, where the facts might be A, B, all the way through Z. Discourse rearranges that to produce a given effect, and unless we have interlocutors who understand the very basics of representational strategies, we could be swept up in stories that are compelling but that aren't based on fact, that aren't based on notions of the commonality that they would they would extol, whether it's about us being Americans, whether it's about our particular historical moment right now. And the humanities are, are really key to an understanding of what uh, of another inheritance, which really is a false opposition between the civic case for the humanities and the economic case. So the civic case is uh, it provides critical thinking and the possibility to be free as in the traditional, the liberal arts that begins uh, with the Greco-Roman tradition and the idea of civitas, the idea of being free from dogma, to the economic case, which is I need a job. And it is curious that it is precisely at a moment of uh, neoliberal emergence in the United States and certainly the rest of the world, but in particular England and the United States, in the 1980s, where three principal pillars begin to emerge and begin to organize social life. And that is privatization, economic efficiency, and personal responsibility. Things begin to get privatized. And we know from the Maggie Thatcher story about uh, you know British Telecom that she gets really angry and all of a sudden she can't uh, get the phone installed and she wants to privatize that industry. And uh, that's an example of how the state and functions of the state are turning over to functions of capital and pecunia, and that is 
uh, monetary gain. With the question of economic efficiency, think of education uh, and why would institutions invest in things like tenure uh, when they could hire uh, adjuncts. And in the question of personal responsibility, if the plenty before us is being dispensed in a meritocratic system, then why is it that if students fail, they must absolutely have a moral failing to accompany that because the plenty is all before them? So these are some of the mythologies that inhere into a particular moment and why, as humanists, it's central for us to be able to untangle that, not only to ourselves and our students, but to constituencies, because this false opposition that we've inherited between the civic case and the economic case are really antithetical to one of the greatest gifts bequeathed by the United States to the world, and, and that is pragmatism. So the question of continental philosophy, from John Dewey to Du Bois to even Gloria Saldua, some would say, education is a function of liberating um, citizens and citizens in the making from the prerogatives of those who would make them subservient uh, to their own interests. So it becomes expedient, it becomes necessary, it becomes urgent uh, to think through how best to have that conversation. And that's really related to some of the films that I was doing, so I appreciate that you asked that question. I had been writing books and articles, and 2016 became a signal flashpoint. Uh, for significant reasons that we've already covered, but most significantly because I wanted to figure out a way to communicate about the particular moment and a particular legacy of people of Latin American ancestry in the United States. And one way of doing that is to reach people through film. And the possibility of storytelling through film became a preoccupation of mine. And I had this wonderful student uh, at a previous institution where I worked, and she had a very compelling story about as a child being brought to this country and not knowing uh, about her status and about her possibility for uh, education and education as a practice of freedom, uh, heavily valued in, in her home. And I wanted to figure out how I could tell that story outside the context of the oral history that I was working with my community at the time and also the various communities that she had put me in contact with. So after uh, getting a grant, uh, I was able to find a director whose work I respected deeply, and we were working on very similar topics, and her name is Carolyn Brown, award-winning documentary filmmaker. She's uh, directed films such as The Salinas Project, and uh, now more recently, Ruby, a DACA dreamer in Trump's America. So I wanted to find a way through technologies of representation and cultural dissemination that would make it possible for a vast swath of folks to hear that story, hear that, that compelling story. Uh, and with a caveat, too, that it is told from a particular perspective, a particular point of view, but one that I feel jibes with the ethics of our moment and the best of American democratic practice, which goes back, frankly, to, to this gift bequeathed by the United States to continental philosophy, which is the idea, as Dewey uh, told us, that 
education is about inculcating either one, someone into the protocols of the old world and ways of being and privilege, or critical citizens in the making that could fortify democratic practice through asking the right questions and not being beholden to the authority or the word of another. And that type of freedom, whether we live them as petite freedoms every day in, in the way that we care for the ones around us that, uh, that we love, in the ways that we reach out to students who seem distant uh, in the classroom but uh, really are uh, undergoing things that we can't even imagine, that type of humanity uh, is, is part of what this great project called democracy requires of us. And as educators, we're at the forefront. And although we can't correct all that inheritance, we could certainly do our best to disentangle uh, what we've inherited, which is a version, a false version of the civic case for education and the humanities and the economic case for education and the humanities. Do you have any suggestions for how we can push back to the economic case for the humanities? It's a complicated conundrum because this is the only country who's been able to achieve a middle class without an education. So from the post-World War II period, what you have is individuals who were able to buy a, a home, a new car every five years through the protections of unions and factory work that no longer exist. That generation, without a knowledge of this civic case for democratic practice and civic enfranchisement, is the very generation that begins to vote against their own interests and the parsing of public funds to public education. So we see that trajectory from the 50s through the 60s, through the neoliberal gutting of education that actually begins in California in the 1980s. And all of a sudden we lose, we lose that very clear moment that we had to do a corrective. When the culture wars emerge, Culture becomes a cruel ruse. We begin to fight about uh, identity labels rather than figuring out how to fight against the structural systems that deny basic access to basic freedoms that were guarded against reflection generations before. So that's a conundrum that we've inherited. Students who come to the university who inherit a version of education from their parents as uh, an elite practice rather than what uh, the Morrill Act did in the late 19th century, which was to create land-grant state institutions because this great project called democracy needed an informed citizenry who could certainly farm, who could certainly produce teachers, but who could be educated enough to make informed decisions about democratic practice. We've lost that. We need to recover it. And educators are at the forefront of that. And we need that clarity now more than ever. We definitely need more educators like you. You've written extensively about Latinidad, Latinoness, and about what it means to be Latino or what it means to have a Latino political identity. We're sitting here in Cincinnati. We're not in a border state. There's a significant Latin American population here, an immigrant population of various social classes, but generally it's quite invisible. And it's invisible or or not um, seen as well in the political realm either. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about why it's important to think about Latino identities and in addition to that, how it's best to think about them. 
By that, I mean, there are so many ways in which talking about Latinidad involves a transnational framing as opposed to just a nationalist framing. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about identity and how we might think about that in a city like Cincinnati. I would think of it from the standpoint of the mission, for example, of this great public uh, institution, uh, which is uh, how to uh, reap the possibilities for self-making in the democratic commons. So one way of understanding that is by uh, having a clear historical record that we have oftentimes lost. And um, unlike some of my Latinx studies colleagues and fellow scholars, um, I believe that uh, Latino identity is a necessary fiction. It is a necessary fiction because it requires forms of reparative justice that are part and parcel of the democratic project. So, for example, when we have things like public accommodation laws, when we have employment law letting us know that uh, through various directives that we need to consider African-American, Asian-American Latino and Native American communities, folks don't understand why we have that. They, they see that as a giveaway without the historical grounding. So one of the primary things that we need to understand is that reparative justice is part of the democratic uh, imperative. And reparative justice necessarily requires representation. So if we don't know that history, that cultural history, that literary history, uh, the historiography attached to the story of uh, people of Latin American ancestry in the United States, uh, we have an inchoate uh, conversation that can't get off the ground outside people's feelings and what they feel about their particular identity. So I like most scholars uh, who are working uh, in identity-related uh, issues and in identity practices. I'm interested in identity as a relationship to the state, certainly not exclusively, but as a necessary one that is premised on reparative justice. And once we frame it in those terms, it then behooves us to understand what we are repairing. Why were Japanese Americans incarcerated and put in concentration camps? Why do we have a legacy of blackness understood as three-fifths of personhood? Why have we discriminated against people of Latin American ancestry and consider them, at least in the public sphere, as synonymous with Mexican? So before we can even begin to understand the Native American question, which is also central to it all, which intersects significantly with Latinx studies, because as we know, a Latino identity is not about race necessarily. It overlaps with uh, various ethnicities. And understanding that history becomes central. And let me give you an example of, of what I mean. Um, it oftentimes um, confuses students when we begin to talk about California, Nevada, New Mexico, Colorado as California, Nevada, Nuevo Mexico, Colorado, because then you begin to understand why these odd sounding names that we've internalized as fundamentally uh, American, think of California, for example, in the mythology of, of, of American mythmaking. Uh, we begin to understand that over half of Mexico's northern territories became part of the United States. 
States after the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, which uh, ensured citizenship for all Mexicans, whether they were elected or not, that were to remain in these territories. And it's curious that after the signing of the treaty on the Senate floor, an expansion of Senator John Calhoun says that one of the greatest uh, miseries to befall Spanish America was placing the indigenous populations and the black populations on an equal footing with the white Spaniards. And we know that that is not true. But that is part of the story that he was telling on the Senate floor uh, as a buildup to the U.S. question which emerged in the 19th century, which was fundamentally about free versus uh, so-called slave states. So it is curious that after that particular moment, Mexican-Americans and other Latin-Americans living in these territories become classed as blacks who speak a different language. And part of the way that cultural accommodation, culturally at least, happened in the 19th century was elite Mexicans and Latin-Americans claiming their racial affiliation with whiteness. So they became complicit in their own erasure. And it isn't until the First World War that we begin to see the emergence of a version of Latino and Latina identity that is definitely related to state formation when all of a sudden during the First World War, you no longer have to be uh, an educated elite white man to serve. The laws get changed and all of a sudden blacks can serve in the military. And think of World War One, where Puerto Ricans who become U.S. citizens through an act of Congress in 1917 are one of the first to go with the Harlem Hellcats to the first theater of war and are one of the first to die for the United States. The first one, the first uh, U.S. soldier to fire uh, a shot in World War One was Teofilo Marush in San Juan, Puerto Rico, when a German steamer approaches San Juan Harbor. So once we begin to tell that story and its relationship to the state, we begin to structure our understanding of more individuated versions of identity that might be transnational. Because if we all of a sudden start from the premise that it is transnational, we erase the very historical accounting that might make transnationalism meaningful specifically with regards to Latinx communities. The U.S. comes to Latinx and Latin American countries. So it is not surprising that because the U.S. goes in the form of economic or military intervention, that we have then immigrations caused by those interventions, whether economic, corporate, expansionist, or military. So having a basic understanding of that allows us to have the interpretive prows to base our interpretations on historical fact and not just opinion. If we leave things at the realm of opinion, uh, we'll continue to do what the late uh, Patrick Moynihan uh, alerted us to, which is that you know we're all entitled to our opinions but not our own facts. And it was deeply problematic when he considered versions of blackness that he tried to understand. But we can't throw out the baby with the bathwater. That understanding of our relatedness to history doesn't make us a foregone conclusion, but makes us active agents in the ability to understand how we are a constitutive part of the American body politic. And before we get to the nuance, uh, which is great to do if we're in academic circles because we have a common language and shared vocabulary, but the majority of folks do not. In fact, in states like Texas, predominantly 
uh, Latino heritage states like Texas, we have Pearson Education following the mandates of the Educational Board, eliminating Cesar Chavez, eliminating the history of the Mexican-American Civil Rights Movement from the national pedagogies that begin in civics classes from sixth grade to eighth grade. So that part of erasure is happening all over the country. So it is, uh, it is stunning, but not surprising that we have now children uh, caged uh, in the border and those who aren't, after being separated from parents, are being put in service agencies for adoption, uh, and many of those are related to the current uh, uh, Betsy DeVos, who is the current uh, education uh, director here in the U.S. for the Department of Education. So, so it is stunning to me that we've lost so much of that historical grounding. And of course, you know, students roll their eyes when they hear history, right? I mean, it, it happened in the past. So we have to figure out creative ways of engaging inclusive pedagogies for all our students so that we can have an honest and earnest conversation about what we stand to lose in democratic practice when we allow spectral inclusion, the idea that we're going to allow this identity or that identity uh, to, to be represented. Uh, we need those parades. Uh, we need those forms of uh, inclusion, but not at the expense of the structural understanding and the critiques and the methods, the tools that we need to critique how those forms of exclusion delimit us all as Americans and drive us against the democratic imperative that I've spoken about. Your point about identity formation in the state is so important. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit more about what reparative justice might look like in the United States. One of the challenges for recent immigrants uh, related to cultural inclusion is what they see, certainly in the academy, um, if they do access the academy, what they see as a deep critique of nationalism, a deep critique of American politics abroad and at home. And that is one of the things that we need to be conscious of because it might begin to explain why while the majority of the 57.5 million Latinos in the United States, 64% of them uh, by Pew uh, demographic uh, studies show, are either citizens or citizens in the making. Uh, that they don't vote, and they don't vote because they come from countries whose traditions are uh, not one of democratic practice, just symbolic democracy, but they understand that elections are rigged. And in this particular moment... And I would add, because of the history of U.S. foreign policy in many of those countries. And how that, those policies necessarily make them want to be invisible with relation to the United States. And one of the ways to think through this moment is what happens when another uh, nation meddles with our elections? And what happens when the primary head of state, the president, uh, asks for foreign intervention to benefit his campaign? We've lost a lot when we've gotten to a point that we can't discern the deep crisis uh, that we are in right now. And it behooves us to figure out ways uh, through that 
and beyond that. And part of that coalition building uh, necessarily entails giving up our petite identities that we are so beholden to so that we can think of something that we've uh, given up, certainly in the culture wars, which is this idea of democratic practice uh, and its ties to forms of nationalism that have generally been exclusive, but that might provide some of the strategies from stepping in and out of the very binds that we have inherited. So it is not an either or, but rather a with and toward reparative justice that we work through within the structural uh, system that that we have. Um, And it's a conundrum that requires the type of work that humanists do, which is fundamentally intersectional, interdisciplinary. And if standards of evidence across and within fields of inquiry, they're necessarily different. Because what convinces uh, a sociologist uh, need not convince a political scientist, but it is precisely at those moments uh, of incommensurate understanding of what counts as evidence, at what counts as truth, and what counts as a uh, as a valid n, a valid number for participants in whatever sort of study that one might be doing, that we begin to ask questions with more nuance than we're used to, and that is why interventions by gender studies scholars that speak through the wage equity that we have inherited, that speak through the limitations for being in the world by virtue of having a binary system that does more harm than good, we can begin to uh, chip away at uh, the worst parts of that inheritance to build something better, uh, to build something that is commensurate with the best of American cultural identity. For the listeners who aren't familiar with the term, could you explain briefly what you mean by Latinx and why we use that term now? It's interesting. Um, Latinx refers to people of Latin American ancestry in the United States. And Spanish is a language that declines in number and gender. So for a male, you would say Latino or Latinos, Latina or Latinas for females. And because it is a romance language, we have that inheritance where the masculine trumps the numbers. So you might have 500 women and one guy, and you have to refer to them as los, the masculine form. Um, It's significant to include the X because that variable X is also a symbol of inclusion, but that in and of itself alone can't repair the particular necessity to have to have that X to begin with. So allowing for an understanding of why that identity is absolutely necessary, along with historical reasons why, beyond I feel that, I need to be included, allows us then to have a deeper and more meaningful conversation about what it is to to be an American and what it is to be an American of Latin American descent. And also related to that, and I think this is something that's really important, is a 1954 Supreme Court case, and it's not just Brown versus Board of Ed, uh, but also a case of Texas versus Hernandez, which the Supreme Court determined that people of Latin American ancestry in the United States were entitled to 14th Amendment protections. So not only blacks in the United States, but people of Latin American ancestry in the United States. And when we use terms like Hispanic, Uh, which are really complex and might begin to explain part of the identity inheritance, we forget that 
the Portugal, Spain, and the Principality of Andorra in the Iberian Peninsula, which is what we refer to as Hispanic, um, aren't entities that have necessarily experienced structural discrimination. So it behooves us to then use terms that are more historically cogent, like Latino, Latina, or Latinx, if one prefers, so that then we could begin to have an understanding of why reparative justice is part of the better calling of the democratic project. And we can't have that when we use terms interchangeably and ahistorically. So um, I don't mean to be pedantic, but there's, there's a moment where it becomes necessary to understand why it is not useful to include, for example, in the census or in state forms, um, identity monikers such as Latino forward slash Hispanic. Discrimination hasn't happened against Spaniards or Portuguese or Andorans in the way that it's happened to people of Latin American ancestry in the United States. So once we begin to disentangle identity as a relationship to the state and identification, what one wants to be called and what one wants to be understood, we co-opt the possibility for the third term that we really don't want in democratic practice, which is disidentification, which is when citizens or cultural citizens uh, become so enraged at the state that they disidentify and uh, engage in mass uh, forms of violence that are deeply problematic. And I'm reducing a lot in uh, my discussion of what I mean by identity, identification, and disidentification. But unless we understand those terms, uh, we don't have a clear anchoring about how to have the corrective toward a reparative form of democratic practice that is premised uh, on justice. And that really is a legacy that inheres to the humanities. Uh, it was Diotima of Manetea who told Socrates, who later told Plato, that the greatest gift bequeathed to humans was the gift of beauty, not as we understand it today as aesthetic practice, but as balance. So every time they go into a courthouse and we see Diotima blindfolded with the scales in front, we're talking about a legacy of equality and the possibility for equity that can be achieved in some small measure, but certainly however small, a very important measure, through law. And that's my, why my insistence on identity as a relationship of this, on the state, if I'm successful <laughs> in convincing colleagues and students about the, the importance of having a pedagogy about that, of uh, having uh, curricular conversations about that, that, then we could do away with it and talk about the more interesting aspects of identification and identity building, because then we would already presume that we are all equal uh, under the law. To clarify, are you arguing that using the term Hispanic, and I'm asking this in part because at the University of Cincinnati, the general term for this month is Hispanic Heritage Month instead of Latino, Latina, or Latinx Heritage Month. Are you arguing that using that term in itself is an act of violence? Um, that might be a bit of a stretch. When President Johnson concedes that September 15th, we're going to have a week called uh, Hispanic uh, History Week, 
And uh, years later, it turns into uh, Hispanic Heritage Month. Uh, we do see in the 80s precisely with the neoliberal rise that students begin to take that term and be more critical about it. And it certainly happens in pockets. It happens certainly on the West Coast. It happens on, on the East Coast where these populations uh, have traditionally been more involved with education as a practice of freedom and understanding. And they begin to use Latino and Latina as a way to disentangle the colonialist Iberian project from the decolonial Latin American project. So for them at that particular moment, it becomes expedient and indeed necessary to separate Hispanic from Latino. And again, to suggest that a particular institution uh, is enacting a form of violence by using a particular name uh, wouldn't be accurate because unless we have a clear understanding of that history, say Hernandez versus Texas, say uh, the U.S.-Mexico War, say military interventions from 1898 onward, uh, we forget that reparative justice goes in steps and in each institution, like those say that we love, they come to us in different ways. And we need to embrace what they offer uh, at the moment that they offer. And we need to offer correctives when uh, they're coming short of their full humanity. And we need to tell institutions that they're coming short of their mission statements. Uh, but they can't be understood as coming short if they don't understand it. Um, so part of the conversation is to talk through that and to, to understand what it means. And I'm glad you mentioned that because then I'll bring it up this afternoon because I think it's an important uh, yeah. point of conversation. And I guess a follow-up, and you don't have to answer this right now, is what happens when you do have those conversations with institutions and then they don't make changes? Um, it's, it's something that all institutions face and that's the good news and the bad news. It's the good news because if they were so reactive to say, act on a Koch brothers initiative, that uh, freedom of expression means that we need to bring Milo to campus and have vulnerable students fear for their, rightly so, fear for their safety, um, we wouldn't have the pause effect that institutions have. The negative, of course, is the endless waiting for the obvious to happen. So that's why it becomes important to have representational uh, equity and to ensure that there are clean and clear lines of communication between administrative structures, staff structures, and student structures as well. And part of the challenge at institutions is fundamentally the two sides of the house, student affairs and academic affairs. Uh, and those bridges are sometimes incommensurate. Think of student tours. Students begin to talk about departments, about schools within an institution in a particular way that schools would scratch their head and say, what? We don't do that. Uh, or, yeah, and we do a lot of other important things, too. So those sound bites that uh, get translated into, you know, the silly example that I just gave you about the students visiting the institution to see if they want to attend and their parents and all the promises that they're being uh, uh, made about their placement for majoring in business. Well, what happens when we have humanists that have and social scientists uh, interpretive humanities folks that parse out data and tell us that those with the most un underemployment upon graduation are business majors. And 
it, unless we can have those clear conversations, we're not going to have clarity about what we stand to lose uh, without partnering up our, our particular interests. But being nimble is essential for institutions, but not so nimble that forces can topple the broader project. Um, and part of that challenge is uh, leaving the, the ivory tower, tower that never really existed uh, to begin with. I mean, that's, that's, that's a fallacy. But if that is a public soundbite that makes sense to people, uh, having public humanities work, and much like you're doing with the podcast and understanding your community, uh, is, is key to have interlocutors that understand where you're coming from that make those conversations with administrative structures less monolithic feeling. Thank you. And that's a great transition to my last question, which is how do you see the state of the humanities today? And I'm asking that because I'm often perplexed by how certain kinds of humanities get a lot more attention than others, if you will. And I'm wondering how we can bring a diversity of voices and perspectives in every sense to the humanities. So I'm curious how you see that playing out in this country. I think I'm going to be a little bit of a, of a scratched record because part of humanities understanding comes from the liberal arts understanding. Mm -hmm. And it is shocking to me that even at privileged institutions such as yours and certainly the ones that I've been affiliated with, that you have parents that think that a liberal arts means indoctrination and liberal ideology mm -hmm. rather than the longer tradition of enlightenment thought that frees us from dogma uh, and unreasonable state forms of uh, abuse and leadership and governance. So we begin to, to have a conundrum. How did we lose this important opportunity to understand such an important project such as democratic practice and to begin to see it in, uh, in really pedestrian terms that have no relationship to, to reality, but who begin to, through, say, alternative realities, substitute a world that doesn't exist with one that is purported to exist uh, through various news outlets or you know, some, some in quotes. So the humanities are going to be central for any form of democratic governance. And as soon as we start losing state appropriations for that, we lose the possibility and the grounding for that conversation. And let me give you an example. When uh, I graduated from my PhD program, 64% uh, of all academic jobs were either tenured or tenure line. Right now, it's under 23 that means that we create an incredible and competitive market where everyone is out for their own. And we begin with a type of infighting where we try to take whatever's left of that 23 point whatever piece of the pie, rather than interrogating and understanding the structural systems that allow that to happen. From state appropriations boards to uh, public defunding of primary and secondary education, unless we're able to have that conversation outside um, our institutional uh, boundaries, we're going to uh, have a harder time in convincing the public uh, of the obvious, uh, which is, for example, uh, tenure ensures that the professor that your child had will likely be there at least six years down the line 
or some variation thereof, depending on where they are on the on the tenure stream, so that they can write letters of recommendation for an employer for law school. Uh, an adjunct who has to go from campus to campus to institution to institution uh, might provide the same letter of recommendation, but under duress and under forms of work and labor that are antithetical to democratic practice. And really ironic when you're having a student uh, ask an adjunct for a letter of recommendation for Smith Barney to do an internship when that adjunct can't even afford health insurance. So uh, we need need to be very clear about what's at stake and have a clear understanding of the terms that we use so that then we can talk with and through each other rather than against each other. Um, Only only then do we have uh, the possibility for uh, the corrective that we need in this particular moment in time. We couldn't have a moment of alternative realities if we had a fortified educational system. Do you have any last minute comments that I haven't addressed? Uh, Your questions have been phenomenal. And uh, you, Amy, are taking part of the best of uh, educational uh, projects in the 21st century with your work at the Taft Center. So I'm happy to be here and to meet so many great people uh, around you that are working with you. And I look forward to meeting so many of your students in your community. Thank you so much. It's such a pleasure to have you here. My pleasure. The music for Humanities Unbound is Reverie Small Theme and You'll Never Know Where You'll Wake Up, both by Ghost and licensed by the Creative Commons. Humanities Unbound is hosted and executively produced by the Taft Research Center director, Dr. Amy Lind. John Keating Crawford is a producer and manager, and Caitlin Lusher is a producer and the editor for the podcast. Technical equipment and support are provided by the Student Technical Resources Center at the University of Cincinnati and the STRC director, Jay Sennard. Episode transcripts are transcribed by Carrie Eason and are available on the Taft Research Center website. Stay tuned for more episodes of Humanities Unbound.